Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January 7th, 2015. This is episode 1494 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good back-to-fundamentals show for you guys today. For those of you watching on YouTube, remember sometimes I do record this show and put it up on YouTube. I'm going to do quite a bit of that in January to get some more content on YouTube, but the Survival Podcast is primarily an audio show, and you can learn more by just going to the survivalpodcast.com. There's also a shortcut, tspc.co, tspc.co. Those of you guys that listen to the show, etc., but want to get on our forum or whatever on your Androids and your iPhones and stuff like that, it's a great shortcut to get to the show. So what's the fundamental throwback for today's show? Uh, food storage. The holistic approach to food storage, the practical holistical approach to food storage is what I'm going to be talking about today. And uh, I, I haven't really gotten deep into this subject for a long time, and I realize we have new listeners coming on all the time. Right now, the podcast itself is downloaded on you know iTunes, Stitcher, etc., direct from the site. When you when you do the math off the server, a hundred to a hundred and ten thousand people a day uh, are downloading the show. Some days we peak at one hundred twenty, hundred twenty-five thousand listeners now. And uh, that means an awful lot of listeners have come into the show over time. And many of the things I've covered in the past, uh, those listeners maybe haven't gone back and listened to older shows and heard about. And as I move forward in my walk of preparedness, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty, uh, I evolve these systems and these techniques. So even those of you that have heard me talk about these subjects before, uh, as I've made these changes in my own life and my own philosophy, I want to make sure I'm sharing them with you. Uh, so with that in uh, mind, today we're going to talk about the fundamentals of food storage uh, from a standpoint of being practical and holistic. And what I mean by that is, you know, the media does a really good job of painting preppers to be these wild-eyed, crazy people, uh, people like you see on doomsday preppers and what have you, uh, sitting on giant uh, stores of nothing but beans, rice, and MREs. And that's actually not a great way to practice your food storage. And it might have a place for those that want real long-term food security, a component of a food storage plan, but it's not the place to start. And if you're trying to spread the message of preparedness to your family and your community, and you're talking to people that you know are just on the knife's edge of saying, hey, you know what, it makes sense to be prepared so that we can be more independent and liberty-minded. Uh, it makes sense to be prepared in case something goes wrong, whether it's anything from a job loss to a hurricane to uh, an economic problem, whatever it is. That's not the place to start them because that will send them running scared right back to what they perceive as reality. But what I'm going to talk to you guys about today is real reality, the reality that was America not that long ago. 50 to 70 years ago, the stuff I'm going to tell you about today, with very few exceptions, was part of the life of the everyday American. It is only modern convenience and modern arrogance that has led us astray from the philosophy of being an ant, not a grasshopper. More on that in a bit. Let me go ahead and take care of our sponsors for today's show. Sponsor of the day number one today, Chef Keith Snow with Harvest Eating. Hey, one of the things I'm going to talk about today is learning how to cook. And learning how to cook in ways that actually extend the storage life of your foods. You want to know how to do that. You want to know how to become a great cook. Master techniques. You want to know how to cook seasonally and locally. 
Check out Harvest Eating with Chef Keith Snow. He'll teach you how to do all that. If you don't think cooking's a prepper skill, well, I'll tell you what, guys. Uh, at one time in my life, I lived in Honduras for six months. And I lived on mostly MREs for six months. Cooking is a prepper skill. You get real bored of that crap really fast. That's why we're talking about holistic food storage today. But get over to HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith has an awesome YouTube channel. Uh, you can get him on Roco as well. He's got a podcast. He's even been on uh, RFID TV and uh, RF real whatever it is, the, the Rural Free Delivery, RFD TV, uh, and some other really great places. But Keith is just an awesome guy. He's got awesome seasonings and sauces and other things for your food uh, cooking. Check him out today, harvesteating.com. Next up today, Western Botanicals, herbs of a different kind. Hey, right now, due to the way that I slept, I have got this wicked pain behind my shoulder blade. I really do. And uh, I just went and took some of the pain relief formula from Western Botanicals. And I can already feel it kind of kicking in and this uh, inflammation going away. It's from an injury I suffered while in uh, military service many, many years ago. And every once in a while I just sleep the wrong way or work the wrong way or do something the wrong way and it comes back. I'd much rather do that than take Tylenol or Advil, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, what have you. And that's just one example of how I really use the products from Western Botanicals. Uh, these guys are not the type of thing that you think of when you think of supplements and herbals. They don't promise to cure cancer or anything like that. They have real products from real people that really care about you. Uh, you go to their website, you can learn more. If it's herbal and it's legal, they have it. Everything from raw, from herbal formulas to individual raw herbs, to preparation materials like menthol, crystals, beeswax, you name it, to be able to make your own herbal supplements. They've got it all. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. If I need an herb and it's not in my backyard, that's where I go, and they always have it. Again, if you need help, pick up the phone. Real people that really care will answer that phone right here in America and help you figure out what you need to do for yourself in improving your health and your in your life. Uh, Western Botanicals and Harvest Eating also both do discounts for members of my support brigade. If you like what I do and you would like to become a member of the Survival Podcast Support Brigade, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members, and uh, there you will see all the options to become a member. Remember, you can join for a year for $50. You can join for a month for 5 bucks and get access to all of the stuff. And if after a month at 5 bucks you don't think it's worth your money, You can cancel and, and not have the renewal or get your PayPal account. And if you like it, you can cancel and extend to a year. I find most people that join my member support brigade that actually use the material that's there, the discounts that are there, the content that's there, uh, they like it and they become very, very long-term customers. It's how I was built the site. And it's why I only have 12 sponsors and it's why you only hear about them for about two minutes a day. Uh, because this is the main thing that I do is provide really great content and hope that those of you that enjoy it and appreciate it and want it to be around for a long time support the show by becoming uh, members. Basically, content you voluntarily pay for with a return of investment that's greater than what you spend. Because, trust me, the, the discounts from Western Botanicals alone can more than pay for your membership if you use a lot of herbal supplements like I do. And there's over 60 companies that have discounts there you can't get anywhere else. All right. With that, let's look at the uh, the year that was the episode. Every uh, day on the Survival Podcast, we look at the year that was the episode. The year's 1494, because the episode's 1494 today. Columbus's letter regarding the gold. Columbus, uh, so remember, 1492, Columbus stole the ocean blue. If you listen to the show, you know the real story about that and the mythology about that now. But 
you know, this is 94. This is where he's done gone back, and he's got more money from the king and queen, and he's supposed to be bringing back gold. So he sets up a procedure for bringing back the gold, and here's what he does. Christopher Columbus posts a letter to Queen Isabella of Castile, Spain, regarding the establishment of colonies on Hispaniola and regulations on the collection and transportation of gold back from Spain. About 90% of the letter concerns individuals collecting the gold. They must be registered colonists and receive permission from the mayor to collect the gold, accept regular inspections, and pay a church tax. When transporting the gold back to Spain, a chest will be double-locked with a key for the captain and a key for the designated official. Should any, be, any gold be found outside the chest, it will be confiscated on behalf of the queen. So you see the, the impetus here for discovery at this time is a route to Asia. That's, that's really why this all started. But in, in the end, it comes down to it's about money, right? And a lot of people think that you know Columbus called the natives the Indians or whatever because he thought he was in India or what have you. I think it became pretty apparent pretty quick for anybody involved with these expeditions that you were somewhere, but you weren't all the way there. It was very different than all the information you had that had gone over land in the past to Asia. How far away is the rest of it? They're not really sure yet, but they know they're somewhere else. But when you see a bunch of people running around gold in their nose, and gold is your currency of choice, uh, you see an opportunity to make it possible to continue the activity that you're on, which is the exploration and search for more. Uh, and greed begins to kick in here. And the, the, the fundamental reality is the entire colonization of what we call the New World was built on the desire for nations far back across the ocean to profit. That's really what drove it. And I'm not here to talk about what's good or bad today in the development of North, Central, and South America. Really not. There's a lot of things that we know were done wrong. There's a lot of things that were no other word than murder and, and on, frankly, on some level, genocide that were committed. But in the end, what's the problem? Is the problem a few guys with some ships coming over here, uh, abusing people, setting up little colonies and what have you? No, it's the advancement of a state's agenda. Without the backing of nations, which derive their wealth through the taxation of individuals, which is the taking of wealth through the threat of violence at the point of a gun or a sword to the throat, those governments couldn't do anything. And there's no way that individuals alone could have done the things that were done. So it's all about, once again, the state, which takes everything that it has. And everything you receive from the state was first taken from someone by force. Just remember that as you're planning your lives and you're working on your own individual freedom and liberty and your philosophy, because I'm not telling you how to think, but your philosophy of how to deal with situations going forward. That whether you think that's a necessary evil or not, it is a fundamental reality. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Oh, I got some for you. Um, those of you on YouTube, you may not be able to partake in this, uh, just because of how long it'll take me to get this edited, put up on YouTube, etc. Uh, rendering one of these takes a long time, like eight hours to render out, you know, a multi, uh, hour and a half, two hour, uh, video. But, uh, Paul Wheaton, my good friend over at richsoil.com and permies.com has a daily-ish email that's really cool. And right now to entice you, 
to subscribe to his email. He's giving away really detailed plans on how to build rocket mass heaters. So if you get on over, they'll have a link in today's show notes. It's already in there. It says free rocket mass heater plans from Paul Wheaton. If you join his daily email list, if you're not already a member, you get those plans. Okay, now let's get into the main topic of today's show. So, <clears throat> again, I want to talk to you about the holistic nature of proper food storage. Now, when you hear a word like holistic, you think herbology and hippies and what my good friend Paul calls purple breathing or something like that, energy medicine, yeah, dude, whatever. That's not what holistic means. That's one group's take on the concept of the word. And one of the things you learn from the Survival Podcast is understanding words and what they really mean are important. So let's go to a different word really quick that's, you know, much maligned and must misunderstood by media and society in general. Survivalist. Because everything I teach on the Survival Podcast comes from the stance of what I call modern survival philosophy. Let's put modern aside for right now. Uh, let's put uh, philosophy aside for right now. Let's look at survival. And looks like if you're a, if you practice modern survivalism, then you are a modern survivalist. So survivalist is the word that gets, you know, meant to mean somebody with aluminum on their head and hiding from the black helicopters that might be flying around in their underwear or whatever. No. Let's look at the meaning of the word. Because then we can look at the meaning of holistic food storage and understand how they fit together. So survival is to continue to exist. Okay. The suffix I-S-T denotes a person that specializes in something. So a survivalist is one who specializes in continuing to exist, continuing to live. When we take modern, that means we use the modern technologies and modern lifestyle and the modern things we want in our lives in a philosophy that allows us to continue to exist, to continue to survive, in the way that we choose, with the comfort that we want in our lives. It's not just about if the world ends going in a hole in the ground. That's the, the, the 99, 5,009s after it uh, percentile possibility of a comet hitting the planet and somebody managing to survive in a bunker somewhere. Things go wrong in the world every day. The shit hits the fan for somebody every day. And one day, that somebody could be you. That's just a fundamental reality. So the modern survivalist philosophy that I teach through TSP, the Survival Podcast, is how do we plan our lives in a way, how do we design our lifestyles in a way that we can continue to exist, continue to survive, continue, continue to thrive in the manner that we choose for ourselves in spite of things going wrong. And food stores now fits into that. So what's holistic mean? That means to look at the totality So what I mean by that is in the survival world, uh, in this niche that's popped up, since everybody and their mother decided there's money to be made and has gotten involved in it, um, this, this concept has been how can I package and sell something to make money? And there's nothing wrong with MREs. There's nothing wrong with number 10 cans that are going to hold food uh, and, and be you know 25-year shelf life on them. Those are actually valid products, and we're going to talk about today where they fit in this holistic thing. But they are very one-dimensional. And then they are sold based on fear and a one-dimensional nature. 
buy a whole bunch of this shit for a whole bunch of money so I can make a whole bunch of money if I'm selling it to you. Store it away, never use it, never touch it, never look at it, but when the end of the world comes, you'll survive. This doesn't work. This actually takes people who would become lifelong modern survivalists and makes them, when whatever they were preparing for doesn't happen, quit, dump it all off on eBay or Craigslist so people like us can buy it at a discount, and makes them the least prepared people uh, long-term when they should have been the most prepared people because their mind was open at one point. And that's what one-dimensional thinking does, and it happens in every world. If you take one-dimensional thinking to treating illness, think of holistic health, symptom, drug, solution, and that's it, people get sicker and sicker. And if you don't think that's the case, look at the rates of chronic illnesses in the United States of America over the last 70 years, and you can see a chart that does this. And it's, it's yes, it's because of toxic stuff in our food. It's probably because of the overuse of certain chemicals in our food and probably has at least some correlation to the excessive vaccination schedules that we're on today. But in the end, the biggest thing that changed in the management of health in the last hundred years, and vaccines would be a part of this, it'd be symptom, drug, solution. We got one-dimensional. When we get one-dimensional, we only address one part of a complex problem, and all of the other things surge. And eventually that one-dimensional solution actually backfires. And that's what happens with food storage. People decide, I'm going to store Mountain House or provide Pantry or whatever. They go out and they buy $4,000, $5,000 worth of food. Their wife gets pissed off, justifiably so. And uh, they have a whole bunch of stuff collecting dust. They don't even know how to use it if they ever have to. And it provides them no benefit today. So that's the other component to holistic food storage. If you do the things I'm talking about today, if you walk into them instead of run into them out of fear, if you see it like, I'm going to get in shape, okay? If I'm going to get in shape and I'm going to start lifting weights and exercising and running and doing squats and all these other things and eating better, I can't do it all at once. And if I try, I'm going to fail. And I can't just do one thing really, really hard and ignore everything else. If I try, I'm going to fail. If I'm going to get in better physical condition, I'm going to have to ease into it. I'm going to have to start making changes in my diet, changes in my activity level. And in six months, I've come a long way. But if I try to go to where I'll be in six months in one minute, I'm going to fail. I'm either going to give myself a heart attack or I'm just going to quit, one or the other. This is what happens with food stores. So we're going to ease into this as a way of living. And if we do that, our life is going to get better and better and better and better every day. And if you do things that make your life better every day, you keep doing them. And this is because people do what benefits us now before they do what benefits us tomorrow. This is why people retire broke. If people understood that you were going to be retired tomorrow, they'd save every dime they could today. right? If it was going to be right the next day. And if you walked down the road and you saw a guy fall over and die had a heart attack and you just had never seen somebody fall over and die well, what's going on and his buddy said ah you know what he ate poorly today and he didn't exercise today one day and it killed him i mean you'd be on the ground doing push-ups that second because you'd think i need to take care of myself now we as human beings we're hardwired in certain ways to do what's instantaneously beneficial because believe it or not in a certain point in our evolution, that was part of a survival strategy. We gorged on fruit at the end of the summer because it was full of sugar. And it's not fat that puts fat on our bodies. 
It's not protein that puts fat on our bodies. It's sugar. Make no mistake about it. If you manage livestock at all, you know if I want more fat on my livestock, jack up the carbohydrates, jack up the sugar, I'll put more fat on them when I'm finishing. So we were hardwired to instantly gratify ourselves because you couldn't go to 7-Eleven and buy Pop Rocks. The fruit only came in this one part of season in bulk. So we're hardwired to hog down on it and fatten up to make it through to spring. So that's still in us. So if I give you a food preservation and food storage philosophy that does nothing for you until something goes wrong, you will quit doing it. So I've put this together so that it improves your life a little bit incrementally every day so that you can see and feel the improvement. You can see and feel the empowerment. And it's also not just holistic within the food storage world, but it's holistic within the whole modern survivalist world. It is one piece. So today what I'm doing is saying, instead of having one arrow in the food storage quiver, let's put lots of arrows in the food storage quiver, each arrow that does different things. If you're an, an archery hunter, you know there's actually arrows that are designed to slow down after a certain amount of time, so they can be used on smaller game or used to shoot animals out of the air. Believe it or not, it can be done. There's there's tips on arrows that are designed to be more of an impactor, to, to stun an animal, to knock it out, to kill it with uh, kinetic energy. And then there's tips on arrows that are designed to cut and kill with hemorrhaging. And there's different types of arrows for different things. So let's take the, the, the quiver that used to have just the long-term stu- food storage in it, and let's put lots of arrows in it. And then let's not just have that quiver on our back. Let's have this whole assembly of quivers, how we manage our life, how we manage our debt, all the things that we do to improve our life and our resiliency so that we can specialize in continuing to live the way we want to live in our modern world and be a modern survivalist. So that's where this all fits together. So with that, let's start out with the rules. I have basically five rules, actually six rules, uh, for food storage. And I'm going to go through each one and the components of each one. And by the end, you'll see how they all fit together. I'll warn you. If you're truly teaching something that's holistic, where all the parts actually fit together, as you go through it, you cannot go in order. This is not in order. Parts of it are a little bit in a temporal order. The things that make sense to start doing first because they're the easiest and they have the immediate direct response. But they'll all have like this end piece that's like hanging out there like why doesn't he say to do this because it's in the next rule and eventually they all tie together and the way you know you're learning something that's holistic is that it doesn't totally connect until you get to the end if everything connects and then there's more it's like vulcanizing right so vulcanizing is like with a tire it doesn't work they tried it's called recapping right it, it had massive failures this was popular in the 80s we take an existing tire which is a, a single unit made from a single fused piece of rubber on a core, and it's got a bad spot in it. And we take another piece of rubber, and we basically try to vulcanize it onto it, weld it onto it. You have a lot of blowouts and problems. A holistic solution is like that original tire. It all goes together. So part one, and many of you in the prepping world have heard this before, but you may, may not really have an in-depth, full understanding of how impactful it is. Eat what you store and store what you eat. In how to practice, eat what you store and store what you eat. So the first thing that I'm going to advise you to do, and I am the only person that I know of so far, and I'm not saying I'm the only person doing it, but I'm the only person that I know of that teaches this component, is the very first thing you do in your food storage 
And that is to keep a food journal. And a food journal doesn't have to be something fancy, and it shouldn't be. I mean, you're talking about, you know, I think these things, uh, this one here sold for, I'm looking at a notebook for those on the audio, 35 cents. A composition book sold for 35 cents. This is not a food journal. I use it for other things, but something like this. So you go out and you buy some notebooks, one for managing your money uh, with a money journal, but we'll get to that in another episode, but one for food. And you put that on the countertop. And every day, whatever you eat, with no judgment whatsoever, at least in the beginning, you write down what you ate. You write down what the kids eat. You write down what your, what your husband ate. You write down what your wife ate, whatever. Everybody that eats anything in that house, including the dog or the cat, you put it in the journal. And that includes when the kids come home from school, let's start having some family communications. What you eat today? And you say, you know what? I'm going to give you some, what do you call it, amnesty. Right? You give your kids amnesty for a few weeks. All right? And don't hold it against them. If you bought a candy bar with extra money that mommy doesn't know about or dad doesn't know, just tell me. I'm not going to say a damn word about it. I promise. Keep your word. Right Again, improve family communications along the way. Holistic. It all starts to spin together. So everything. Dad comes home from work and mom's the one managing the journal. Honey, what did you eat for lunch today? I don't remember. Come on. Tell you. Men never want to talk about their day. They will remember what they ate. I ate chicken wings. Or whatever. Write it all down. Just write down. If you send them off to work with food, you've already got that in the journal. But if they came home and they bought some at the commissary or whatever, find out every single piece of food consumed. Try to do that for 30 to 60 days. Now, again, holistic means we don't wait till one step's done before we begin the next. We begin what we can begin, when we can begin it, in a way that's easy to do. But this journal is the foundational block. I want you to start doing this today. There is no excuse for not doing this today. Oh, I didn't, I'll start tomorrow because I didn't write down what I did this morning. I don't care. Put the journal on there and do this evening and start writing this down. This is going to trick you into improving your health long term. I won't even get that into that, into that today. But it's going to give you a shopping list. Other things your family actually eats. And I guarantee you, most Americans, if I go through their pantry, I'm going to find stuff in there and I'm going to be like, what'd you buy this for? Oh, I don't remember. And it's been in there for two or three years in the back. And they never use it. And that's their food storage, right? We're going to end up getting rid of that stuff and we're going to make space. Because we have two budgets when it comes to food storage. Actually, three. Food, we have, we have space, we have cost, and we have time. You'll understand time later. But in the end, those are the three things we have to budget in our food storage. We can only afford so much. We only have so many spots to put it. We only have so much time to work on it. So we're going to get that out of the way if it's never going to be used. And we're going to give it to homeless people that will eat anything. And we're doing this so we don't become one of them, by the way. And we're going to free up that spatial budget to put more of the things in there we actually do, stuff in our book. This is going to tell us what the kids really eat. You think you know what your kids eat. You do not. And I even mean the stuff they're eating in the house. Kids eat mindlessly. Parents get tired. This is not going to be something you do forever. This is just something. Now, it will improve your health because it will bring awareness to everybody in the family of how much crap you're actually eating. You'll start eating less crap. But it will also give you this list. So you can go to the next step in this piece of the rule. Practice copy canning. 
And it's not just for canned foods. This is any food substance whatsoever that is shelf-stable without going in the refrigerator or the freezer. And you can do it, especially if you have a chest freezer, with items that go in the freezer as well. But it's best suited for the shelf-stable items. Anything that's in that list that you use that can sit in your shelf for six months to a year or more and still be good to eat, you start a copy canning process with. All this means is, let's say, and for the people who can't see the camera, I'm holding up my coffee cup. Let's say this is a can of Wolf Brand Chili. That is a food staple here in Texas. Uh, it is used in a lot of things. And let's say that I realize that that little occupant shows up on my list two times a month. When I'm not planning anything, I'm not doing anything different, that's just, I use a couple cans of that a month. I know I'm going to use it. So when I go to the store and I have on my list, get two cans of chili, I'm going to just change it to three. Or four. One or the other, depending on how much I'm buying and how much my budget lets me do. And I'm going to bring those cans home. And I'm going to put them in my pantry, just like a store clerk would, in a single line on my pantry shelf. And the next time that I use two cans and I go to the store, I'm going to buy four cans. Or three cans, depending on budget and time and space, etc. And what else I might be doing this with. Until I get a line of those cans that go all the way to the back of the pantry. If I use it a lot, there might be another line coming all the way back to the front. And then I'm going to pick another item to do that with. And then I'm going to pick another item to do that with. And I'm going to pick another item to do that with. And if somebody was with me at the grocery store, they wouldn't see me as a prepper. I just bought a couple extra cans of chili or tomato sauce or Kraft macaroni and cheese, which I don't eat, but your kids might. And buy what you eat, eat what you store, and store what you eat. See how simple that is. If your kids love Kraft mac and cheese and you find yourself making that stuff three, four times a month, you might want to think about other ways to do that. You can make awesome macaroni and cheese, by the way, that's actually decent and good for you if you wanted to. But anyway, buy, I don't, I'm not here to judge you. right? If that's what you're eating, then build a stockpile of that with a copy canning process. If you're buying pasta, again, instead of one box, buy two. Instead of two, buy four. Keep doing that until that is built up to where, okay, I've got enough pasta now. Now go on and do it with the sauce. Now go on and do it with something else. And just do that. If you do that, Within about three months, you'll start having this deep, well-organized pantry. And you'll start, you'll continuously go look at your list, because keep writing your list down every day. Just write down everything you eat. You don't even have to get, you know, one cup of pine, no, just pineapple, canned pineapple. Just whatever it is, write it down. You'll start to realize that can of condensed milk is never getting used. I don't use that. You're either going to figure out how to use it, and make it part of your recipe planning, or you're going to get rid of it. And all of a sudden, that jumbled pantry will turn into this well-organized rotational system. And every time new food comes in, put it way in the back and pull it to the front, just like you're a stock clerk at a grocery store. And all of a sudden, you start to have this little mini grocery store in your pantry instead of this disorganized, disheveled mess. Now, then you need to start thinking with a meal mentality. And here's what I mean by that. So... With a meal mentality, you start to say to yourself, what, which of these components go together with which other components? So if I'm buying A and B, and they always seem to end up on the list together, they're part of a meal. Which other things go in that meal? Which of those are storable? And start to match up the quantities so that these five things make this meal. You'll probably find one or two only are perishable. And they will be between fresh fruits and vegetables and meats. Those would be your two big perishables. 
or eggs, which I'll put in the meat category, cheese, which I'll put in the meat because it's an animal food, right? And by the way, cheese properly stored is a long-term storable, not necessarily needing a refrigerator. Eggs, same thing. So there are ways to store eggs, very low-tech that we won't get into today, but you'll find that's what it is. So now you're going to start planning to build this piece of a meal in this long-term storage capacity that doesn't change anything about your lifestyle. And it'll start relating to other things that we do down the road. Make sure you store what your kids eat. I know people think when they're hungry, they'll eat. When you're stressed the hell out because you've either lost a job or the roof's missing from your house and you're living on your preps, you want your kids happy as possible and comfortable as possible and yourself as happy and comfortable as possible. This is why we're not relying on a pallet of MREs. Because you're not going to feel that way if that's what you're living on. That's my never food unless I have to food. Okay, that's my that's my Roth IRA that I don't touch until I've used up all my other retirement money. That's how I'm going to look at that. Make sure you're storing pet food. Remember, I said when you write down everything in the food journal, one can Alpo or whatever you feed your dog. I feed my dogs Blue and some other really good dog foods, but write down what the dogs eat. Almost all pet food is shelf-stable. Copy can for your pets. Because all of a sudden, the dog, who's an asset to the family, starts to feel like a liability to the family in a stressful time. That's the last thing you want, is to have to give up an animal during a downturn in your personal economy, which is the main thing that will make you rely on this stuff. Uh, so that's pretty much rule one. Rule two, take advantage of opportunity buys. See... When you start doing this type of approach, you're starting to practice what's called capital deferral, whether you realize it or not. Now, it's a real fancy word, capital deferral. It is what Southwest Airlines does with fuel, and it's one of the reasons they remain incredibly competitive. They have analysts that look at the price of oil and jet fuel very, very specifically, and at opportune times, they purchase contracts for a year's worth of fuel for their jet fleet. And what this does is when everybody else is scrambling and paying a really, really super high price, they've already locked in a lower price, and it's one of the many ways they remain competitive. You can do this in your own home. When we start to get into that point of building that deep pantry, we can start looking for the opportunity buys. And that means when a particular item that shows up on that list a lot goes on sale, instead of just copy canning, we buy the shit out of it. And you'll find that most non-store or most storable items Go on sale one or two or three times a year. And if we really bulk up on those during those dips in price, because supermarkets run these, these cycles of sales, they know there's different what's called trigger products. And a trigger product is when mom's sitting down, going just thumbing through the, the specials or watching on TV, that if there's a special on this one thing, mom's going to the store that, even if she could have waited until next weekend, she's going that weekend to get that. And the only way to maximize that for a retail establishment is to constantly change what you're featuring so that you hit different parts of your demographic all throughout the year to even out your sales and keep that continual draw coming in, that incremental revenue. So that's what those things are designed. By giving you a deal on Wolf Chili and knowing you're going to come in and say, man, that's the cheapest I've ever seen that stuff. I'm going to buy 20 cans of it. You're not leaving with just Wolf Chili. I know that as a marketer. So that's designed to entice you in. So 
that's going to create a natural pattern of rotating through the product lines, which is going to give you these individual opportunity buys throughout the year. So now that you've got your journal, you know what you're buying and why you're buying it. You're eating what you store and storing what you eat. When one of those slices of your pie goes on sale, you hammer it. You also do things like collect coupons for those things. And you hammer the coupon when the sale's there if you can. It's called stacking. I personally don't get really deep into that, but we do pay attention. And when we see something on sale, we use we buy. And if my wife happens to see a coupon for something that she buys a lot, she does clip it. Uh, and a lot of that stuff can be done electronically online now, especially with things like reward cards through Albertsons and Kroger's and things like that. So you fit that whole piece together in Rule 2, which is taking advantage of opportunity buys and understanding the capital deferral concept. So a little more on the capital deferral concept before I go to the next one. What that actually means is since I've bought a bunch of spaghetti sauce or since I've bought a bunch of pasta or since I've bought a bunch of wolf chili or whatever it is, and again, you buy what you eat and store what you eat, since I've done that, and that is food that I absolutely conclusively know due to my journaling, that I'm going to sooner or later buy, sooner or later buy anyway. And since I'm going to buy it anyway sooner or later, and I'm going to use it because I know I eat it, the money would have been spent. The only difference is I would have spent more for the individual items. And if I start prorating this across, let's say, an average American nuclear family of four individuals and their annual food budget, it's conceivable that I can easily cut 10 to 15% without even using coupons, out of their annual food budget. And, and when you look at you know families spending $10,000, $20,000 a year on their food budget, that's a significant amount of money. That's two house payments for a lot of people, or more. Now, think about that. You're putting two house payments back in your pocket. It's a new way to see this. Like I said, this philosophy, probably, properly integrated into your lifestyle design, has rewards starting on day one, and they are compounding rewards. The longer you do it, the more efficient you become, the less time you spend thinking about it, and you just, you've built it into, I just, this is what I do. I don't even think about this, I just do this. The more effective it becomes, and the more it does for you. And you find yourself with surpluses of things like money, and that's a good thing to have. Um, rule three, find local sources of food, and partake in them. This is a lot of different things going on in this one. But number one is buy from your local producers. We have a website you can go and find local producers that are certified uh, by our company, AgriTrue, that produce high-quality, nutritious food that in many cases is beyond organic. And you can find that at agritrue.com, A-G-R-I-T-R-U-E.com. There's another site called Agrilicious. There's tons of sites that you can go out there and find local producers. Ask around. Look on Craigslist. Start buying your eggs. You know, that's something you can always do. Start buying your eggs from local producers. They'll probably know about, tell you about other producers. We personally, on our little farmstead here, we sell chicken and duck eggs to local uh, people. We've met great people by doing that. It pays pretty much for the food the birds eat. It's not a real big money maker for us, but we're supporting the local food movement. We're becoming more tied into it. You are only as strong as your total network, right? You're not strong as an individual. I don't care if you're in the gym every day and you think you're a CrossFit super athlete or you've been through SEAL school or Special Forces. It takes one broken leg for you to be a weak-ass son of a gun. 
And that's the reality. It takes one illness to knock you down. I consider myself pretty fit. I do a lot of work on my property every day. I really do. And I've gotten in great shape over the years. When I started this show, I weighed 80 pounds more than I do today. The stuff I'm talking about today led me there. They can lead you there too. So I consider myself, especially for a guy in his 40s, a guy that has a grandson that calls me Papa Jack, right? That makes you feel old, folks. It does. When you hear your son's 25 and your niece is 32, you start to feel old, okay? But I consider myself in great shape. But I got hit with an illness this year that took me down for a week and a half. I was sleeping 16, 18 hours a day. So you always want to be building up your community. Your community is not just where you live. It's all the people that interact with and support you. Churches, community centers, and yes, the people you do business with locally. And the most fundamental thing to your survival in our modern world, where we pretty much take shelter for granted, because most of us have a place to live. If you didn't, you probably wouldn't be listening to me, right? Um, is food. It's the thing that, number one, keeps us alive and keeps us growing. The right food is what keeps us healthy, and the wrong food is what makes us sick. So there could be no more important component to your network of community than where you get your food from, and Jenny at Kroger ain't it, okay? That's as blunt as I can be. The guy that farms the food, that ranches the food, the person that actually value-adds the food. So if you're buying a canned food product, like I know a gal locally that takes and does this. She buys all either local or organic ingredients. But every product she produces, at least one ingredient was produced in her small backyard. And she puts that all together in value-added products like tortillas and salsas and stuff like that. She does a great job with it. She is a local source of food. The kid at Kroger that will be fired next week is not. And Kroger is not. They're a conglomerate. That is not part of your network. They see no more value to you than the next joker that walks in. The small local producer that you buy from cares about you. They want you to keep coming back. And if you get into a point where the demand for their product exceeds their supply, their existing customers come first. As a producer that sells food like that, I can tell you it's true. So you need to build that part of your relationship. So find local producers. You'll start eating healthier, and you'll start finding ways to save money. You'll start figuring out, hey, I'm paying $20 for a pastured chicken, but it's a lot better for my family. You think, I could go buy that chicken for 5 bucks at the grocery store. But you buy that chicken for $5 at the grocery store, it's poor quality. It stinks when it comes out of the package. You really don't want to be feeding it to your family, and you do what you can with it, and a lot of it goes as waste. You buy a really high-quality chicken, and you've got the first night's meal. You've got pickings off of the dadgone thing that lead to something like chicken enchiladas. And you got the carcass or two of them going in a, a stew pot together at the end and making chicken soup. You're getting three meals out of one bird. It's not that you couldn't do it with the grocery store product, but since it doesn't have the quality and the value to you, you probably won't. Instead, you'll buy it already pre-cut up and stuff like that. All right, So that local food production connection is huge. Now remember, you don't have to do all these in one week. You can't. It's not going to happen. But as you plan your life and you stage these things in, it can be a little thing. Find one local producer, buy your eggs from them. Just start there, right? Find one local producer that produces pastured poultry, buy your chicken or a portion of your chicken from them. Find local farmer's markets, whatever it is, buy from them. Then, learn about local seasonal opportunities. 
If you start finding things like farmer's markets, you're going to find out things like, you know what, everybody has the bulk of the same thing at the same time, and in that instance, the price of that goes down. And as that season gets to the point where they're about to lose the product, it's going to start to go bad. If they don't dump it, everybody cuts the price. And all of a sudden you go down and you buy 40 pounds of green beans for 50 cents a pound, which is 20 bucks. Let me tell you something. In time, energy, resources, etc., you cannot grow 40 pounds of green beans for $20. You can't. The time you spend doing it could have been doing something else that would be more profitable for you. Learn that your time is profitable if it's properly spent and invested. Okay, And what that means is you're better off buying it from that local producer who is going to lose all of his product, who, by the way, can make money at that rate. Not a lot of money. He'd rather sell it for 75 cents to a dollar a pound. But he's still making some money because his efficiency is higher than yours is as a backyard gardener. Okay, He gets some money. You get the product. And you'll learn later in my rules what to do with 40 pounds of freaking green beans. Because you, you really can't use them. I mean, how many days are you going to eat green beans before you get tired of them? But there's ways to leverage that opportunity by. And you'll find all types of seasonality. You'll find that a lot of people might have surplus meat animals that are more of a coal animal at certain times of year that they'll sell for a lot less than a purpose-grown meat animal, and yet that animal still is quite valuable to you. So just talk to people and watch those seasonal flows. Uh, so now we're taking the opportunity by from the grocery store to the local food market. Now this is not being predatory. This is just understanding it. You might find a local orchard that does you pick. Go out and pick your own apples. And a lot of times, since people are picking their own apples, they cherry pick. I mean, that's part of you pick. You got there, that's got bruise on it. That's got a little hole on it. That's got, I'm just going to pick the stuff that looks best. And at the end, toward the end of that cycle, the producer is left with a whole bunch of stuff that's not bad. It just isn't highly marketable. And they might put them in a great big bushel basket and sell a giant bushel basket of apples for five bucks. That's a seasonal opportunity buy. Again, talk more about what to do with it later. But think about that. Um, when it comes to local sources of food, a lot of people in the survival world say, well, when the shit hits the fan, I'm run up on a mountain. I can feed myself with fishing rod or rifle. And if the type of thing they're preparing for ever happens, they're not going to be the only one to think about that now, are they? They're just not. Well, that resource, though, is an abundant resource that we're very fortunate to have as sportsmen in this country that we can hunt and fish. And, you know, just the person with a small uh, few woodlots of land that they can hunt, that takes their hobby time, that they would rather, you know, in any other case be probably spending money and takes a walk with a 410 shotgun and pops squirrels, you know, can put pounds and pounds of meat away every year. Uh, I used to live in a place where there were some lakes that were only about a 50 cents worth of gas round trip on a four-wheeler away from us that nobody really fished because they were kind of hard to find. And they were full of bluegill. I'm talking bluegill as big as your hand. And a buddy of mine that lived in the same area was a guy with a four-wheeler, and uh, we'd ride out there together, and he'd spend all day fishing for bass with uh, you know rubber worms and stuff like that. And there were a lot of bass in there, and he did it for sport and released just about everything he caught. And I'd spend most of my time catching bluegills. I take a little board with me on the back of the four-wheeler with a nail through it so I can fillet the bluegills. 
And uh, when I'd get done fishing, I'd fillet those bluegills, skin the fillets, put them in a bag, had a little cooler with it, throw that in there, and we'd ride on back to my place. He'd drop me off and go home. And, you know, I'd do that a week, once a week, all summer long. And at the end of the summer, 40, 50, 60 pounds of fillets, gallons and gallons of fish fillets, high-quality stuff, clean water. There might be a, a local city park with hand-sized bluegills in it. There may not be. I don't know. you got to figure out what's available to you. You know, that was something I had then that I don't have now, but that's just an example of what's out there. So hunting and fishing, especially if you can integrate it into your daily activities. And, and you know, if you go to Colorado and you pay a guide thousands of dollars and you shoot a great big 6x6 six six elk and you bring the rack and the hide and the meat home, you have not taken meat profitably. But you've taken a vacation and got meat as a surplus, as a byproduct, is the way you can look at it. But if you go out in your local, you know, public lands or whatever, and you hunt white-tailed deer, and you have a state that lets you shoot three, four, five deer or more a year, which many states do, um, that's all meat that you could almost call free. So it all depends. So hunting and fishing are very valuable ways to put food into your lifestyle. High-quality, very nutritious food, low-fat uh, low bad quality fat, not CAFO stuff. You can look up CAFO if you want uh, on the internet to see what that is, but that's where most of your meat comes from. So that's really a great asset, and it's a good one to use now. But again, so when I was uh, living in Arlington, Texas, uh, there was a lake about 10 minutes away from me, and I had a little aluminum boat I had $800 into. And uh, I would drive over there, and it would cost me $100 a year for a permit for the lake. And uh, gas for the truck and the boat in a day would be a dollar because it was so close. And I had this little five-horsepower motor on the boat. And I had a little motor out from the, the thing a little bit and sit over these humps and catch sand bass and motor over to the, the, the bridge and catch channel catfish. And I'd come home with 15 to 25 white bass, which was the legal limit, and you know a dozen or so big channel cats and fillet those up. And that was a lot of meat, a lot of fish meat anyway, uh, for, for very little input. Now, I had a buddy that fished out there for the same type of fish that had like a $30,000 bass boat. That was not a profitable activity for him. So it's strategically developing these things. Uh, or if you are using that expensive equipment so that you understand that the if, if I'm out there as a bass fisherman and that's just my hobby and I like it and I don't keep bass, can I figure out how to pick up a, a table quality fish at the same time as a byproduct? So I'm not going to tell you to give up your hobbies. You might on your own when you start planning your finances, but I'm just saying, you know, you, or you might figure out that more profitable hobbies exist. Again, I'm just saying. But that's how to think about the whole fishing and hunting thing. Um, the next thing is learn about local wild edibles. Now, I don't have a huge amount of local wild edibles around here, but we do have them. Uh, there's native persimmons around here that aren't the best eating, but they do make good jams and things like that. They can uh, do a lot of other things that I'll, I'll hold off on because this is another rule into itself. But blackberries grow well around here, etc. When I, when I was a kid in Pennsylvania, every year for about two weeks, there were just blueberries all over the mountains. And we would have just run after run of like all the kids load up and put people in a Jeep and go up and like the whole dadgone family and extended family go pick blueberries. And we would put up 
gallon Ziploc bags of, of blueberries all through that period of time, and they would be used all year long. And that was all a wild resource. Uh, there's places in, uh, in the Northeast where uh, wild leeks, wild ramps, are so prevalent they have festivals built around these foods. And there's always something. So learn about the things that could just be gathered from the wild. And you might practice a little bit of, like, gorilla gardening with them. Like, we had really great blackberries on our mountain in Arkansas, the place we had there. And the roads would develop all this moisture and water uh, in the ruts. So to help improve the road drainage, we cut little ditches out of the roads. And then we bermed up behind the blackberry stand, this really big blackberry stand. So the water then ran off the road and then sunk into the ground where the blackberries were. And then we had more productive blackberries. That's just one way to do something you do one time, very low tech, and it just improves a natural resource that's already there. So all of those things together about local food are everything from wild to hunting and fishing, local producers, farmers markets, partake in that. You don't have to do all of them, but do the ones that work for you in your lifestyle. Um, the next one, rule four. Now, I got off on the beginning of this uh, episode today talking about long-term stuff like the Mountain House number 10 cans and things where you might think, hey, uh, this guy's kind of anti-long-term, 25-year shelf life food storage. That is not the case. I see a very specific way to use them. Specifically, I use them as extenders. They extend my food insurance, my food assurance, and they use them as adjuncts to the things that I'm cooking normally anyway. So kind of breaking that down, the adjunctive feature. So an adjunct is something added on. If we're a beer brewer, an adjunct would be like if we make a wheat beer, we might add an adjunct that is a raspberry fermentation that makes a raspberry wheat beer. Or it might be a minor thing that we add on, like uh, Irish moss would clarify a beer. Um, but with this, we can add adjuncts onto our uh, our stable shelf life food stuff. So let's say that we come up with a dish that uses uh, three things that we can store on a shelf with no refrigeration for a year or more. And most of the stuff that we'll store by expiration date for six months to a year, we'll store for two to three years, no problem. Uh, there's a, a very big um, CYA factor used by food manufacturers in those expiration dates. And remember, it benefits them when you throw that food away and buy new food. So there's also a benefit to pull that number in a little bit. Most canned foods are good for three, five, more years. And if they're not good, you'll know they're not good. So anyway, um, you have those three ingredients. But there's also another ingredient there that just doesn't store on a shelf. Let's say that ingredient is chicken. Well, in those number 10 cans, one of the products you can buy is freeze-dried cubed white meat chicken breast. And it's pretty daggone good. Freeze-drying is the most expensive and best way to long-term store a piece of food. You get that? The best way, but it's also the most expensive way. But if we have that recipe and it calls for that chicken then we can store all those other things without a specialty product. I don't need to go out and buy dehydrated vegetables. I can dehydrate my own, which comes in at another point in the holistic nature of all this. But I can have all that stuff stored, and I have to buy one specialty product or two specialty products. And then I can, when I need to use that, I can go get that product and I can use it. What that lets me do is occasionally, for convenience sake, pop one of those cans open and use it. 
Not just wait for the apocalypse, not just wait for the zombies, and actually even get some rotation into that and get some experience using those products if I need them. The strength of these prepared products is they do last 25 or more years. And that lets you maybe build up not a year supply of those things, but maybe 30 to 60 days. And that adjuncts your timeline. Let's say I can store in my home using all these other components two months worth of food. Now, let's say over time, I add another two months in these specialized long-term storage things. Now, I've got four months. You see how that works. Instead of just buying four months' worth of it, I've doubled my time using a specially prepared item that I can also now pepper through all these other things instead of just living on that one thing. You don't have to add this one. This is the most optional. Of all the option, of all the things that are in my plan, the specialized long-term storage. But I think if you start examining some of what's available, instead of looking at these massive put together $9,000 pallet based things with a lift gate truck coming to your house, unloading 10 pallets, and you actually start saying, let me look at my food journal, let me look at the things that are hard to store, and let me then pick and choose from that group those things to augment what I'm doing, it's so powerful that you'll selectively do what makes sense for you. Notice, I didn't say, here's the things that I have upstairs, uh, or out there, so to speak, in my long-term food storage from these items. Go buy these things the way that I do. No. I said, you fit them into you. Some of the things I do store, I have a bunch of gulf shrimp. Gulf shrimp. They're about that big. They're awesome. Freeze-dried, uh, awesome. In fact, I have a couple cases of them. Occasionally, one of those cans gets opened. I'm very leery to open those, and here's why. They don't even make that particular kind anymore. It was a clearance opportunity buy from the other rule placed here. One of my sponsors happened to tell me, hey, I'm selling a bunch of this stuff really cheap because it's being discontinued. And I bought it, and I bought pork chops. I tried it right away, and they're great. You can be used in stir-fry. These, I mean, but the thing about them is I wish they would bring them back. Because in the end, when I do the math, they cost less than fresh shrimp. Are they as good as fresh shrimp? No, but they're close. And in things like a gumbo or a seafood chowder or shrimp and eggs, which is something I've recently discovered that's awesome, they're great. So I can open that one can and do something I'm going to talk about in a bit with the bulk of it so that it doesn't you know, start to lose its storability and use it a little at a time. If you see your long-term storables that way and pick and choose, you'll see how powerful they are. And then it gets really easy to say, I'm going to buy, every time there's a sale on Mountain House, I'm going to buy a case, which is six cans, of the things that are most important in my storage plan. And over years, you end up with this huge supply of food, it doesn't take up much space and damn near lasts forever. And it's all stuff you'll use eventually anyway. That's how I practice long-term food storage. You won't come to my home and find, you know, floor-to-ceiling stacking in a room somewhere with rice and beans. You won't do it because I don't eat a lot of rice and beans. I'll break my first rule, eat what you store and store what you eat. It's not that those things don't have value. I'll talk about the value of those in a bit too. It's just simply that, we're not going to take that approach, that one-dimensional approach, and we're going to weight our particular plan for our particular family based on what best serves us. 
So your food storage final footprint might look a lot different than mine. I'm a paleo guy. I rely mostly on meats and vegetables and fats. You may be a high carbohydrate intake person. I don't think it's the best for your health, but it can be done healthy, you know, in a reasonably healthy way. And if that's what you want to do, then you should build it that way. I rely a lot on my own produced pastured meats and local pastured meats and my own eggs and things like that. You may rely on something totally different. You may live in that place like I used to where you can get tons of fish for next to nothing. And fish might be a huge part of your diet. So your plan is going to look different. Everything I teach you on the Survival Podcast is designed to be tailored to your life, not for me to dictate to you what to do in your life. Because that's my plan, and it won't work for you. I'm different than you. You're different than me, and you're different from your neighbor. So that's what makes this doable. All right. So the next thing is I really recommend you learn about meals in a jar. And I'll put a link to a a gal who does a great job with this. And that's where we can take a lot of these long-term storable foods. And every once in a while, let's crack some of them open. Let's get out jars. And we can either use... um, O2 absorbers or dry canning, which I'll talk about in another step, and make this like layered thing. Vegetables, bouillon, etc., everything in there. And then when we come home and no one feels like cooking and everybody's thinking about blowing a bunch of money going out, even though that's not the most cost-effective meal to make at home, it costs less than a trip to Chili's or Applebee's, and it is better for you. You dump it in a jar, you add a certain, dump it in a pan, add a certain amount of water, heat it up, and it's done. So meals in a jar are a great way to take that long-term storage food and package it in a usable way to spread out some of its use throughout a year as a convenience food that's still highly nutritious. The next thing I would say is do not go overboard with this stuff. Uh, the long-term storage food, because it's never going to go bad, is easy to end up behind a pair of boots somewhere in the back of a closet never seen again. And when you're, you're, you're an old dead guy or an old dead lady, people clean out your house, they'll think you were crazy and worried about black helicopters in your underpants, okay, and had a tinfoil hat. Because they'll find all this stuff that you didn't even know was there anymore. So don't go overboard with it. Keep an inventory on it. Know what you have. Know where it is. And figure out how to use some of it occasionally. And learn how to cook with it. So that if you ever get to a point where something mundane happens, like Dad comes home, lost his job, and the pricks that laid him off didn't give him any severance, and he's living barely getting by, paying the mortgage, just that, nothing more with uh, unemployment, looking for a new job, and you're living on that food. Everybody's comfortable with it. Everybody knows how to use it. Nobody feels like they've lost anything, at least from putting a good meal on a table. If you can feed your family and keep a roof over their head and meet that cliche that's a cliche for a reason, you can be a strong, empowered individual looking for that next opportunity in your life. If you're worried that next week you won't be able to feed your kids or keep that roof over their head, you're going to act from a a status of panic, and you'll make stupid, poor decisions, like taking any job instead of finding a good job, or like even finding the right job but not negotiating the right salary. Everything gets better when you create stability and assurance and insurance in your life. This is just doing that with the food aspect of it. But don't go overboard on it. The next one, rule five, become a producer of food, and slash or storage techniques, okay? So long-term storables. So now a lot of this is going to start to loop together now. The holistic nature is going to start to become evident. In fact, more than a loop, it's more like a a symbol for infinity, a a flowing figure eight. It's almost more of spheres merging together because it is holistic. 
So, you know, start thinking about things like the opportunity buys, buying 40 pounds of green beans and fishing and hunting and gathering food as I go through some of these techniques, and you'll see that. So, first of all, in the preparedness world, everybody wants a garden. And it's one of the things that people put a lot of focus on. There's a billion YouTube videos on how to square foot garden and all different types of gardening techniques, polyculture gardens and hoo culture beds. And I do all of that stuff. I'm not putting it down, but I'm going to tell you, gardens are great. Perennials are better. Gardens I have to deal with on a, a semi-daily basis, and I definitely have to do a lot of work seasonally. I have to weed, I have to plant, I have to sow, I have to start plants, or I have to buy plants. You know, I have to harvest. There's so many things that go into a garden. I have to water, I have to irrigate, I have to continually worry about fertility and things like that. If I plant an apple tree and I plant things around that apple tree to support that apple tree, and four to five years later that apple tree starts producing apples, I have to prune it and train it once a year. If it's an intensive backyard apple tree that I want to keep small, And, and manage as a small tree, even though it could become a big tree, I have to prune it and train it two to three times a year. And it's really easy and really fast, and fruit comes off of it every year. This is true with herbs, different types of vegetables. Asparagus is a great plant. Every gardener that doesn't have asparagus and grows broccoli is working really hard for something that's pretty dead gone close to the same thing. I know asparagus tastes a little different, but in reality, I mean, nutritional-wise, time of the year that your best harvest comes from, etc., I mean, they serve the same culinary component with a little bit of a different flavor profile. Um, there's a thing called sea kale, which is basically a kale that's perennial. There's a lot of different perennials out there, some in the vegetable world, but fruits and nuts are the easier ones. Your berries are a huge return of investment, and they start producing right away. So start thinking about landscaping your little suburban lot with wolfberries, blackberries, blueberries, and strawberries versus you know ornamental hollies and boxwoods. That one little step can put food in your yard without gardening, without all of the additional stuff. That, and I love the stuff, right? I do it every day, but I'm, I want everybody to produce some of their own food. This is the easy entry. Imagine if you just went to every uh, place in America where you have that typical lollipop tree in the front yard and two or three little garden beds and automatic sprinklers put in and change the ground cover from some sort of ornamental ground cover to something like strawberries, change the lollipop tree to a fruit tree or nut tree of your choice, and all the bushes to things like blackberries, blueberries, uh, wolfberries, etc. Just that one step. How much food do you think America would be uh, producing for itself in the suburbs if we did that? And, you know, if you live in a place where people, you know, like HOAs and stuff come down on guards, the stuff I just talked about, you can have the same mulch, the same appearance, the same outlay, You just have food. So always start with developing perennial food systems on your property, whether it's a, uh, a small farmstead like I have, three acres, a big farmstead or a big farm like 100 acres, or a little tenth of an acre lot in the city, your perennials, almond trees, peach trees, apricots, whatever grows, cherries, whatever grows where you're at. Uh, the next thing, small livestock is a great way to get into high nutrient-dense production fast. I just did a whole show yesterday on ducks. With the right property, ducks need almost no inputs. They need water, food, and a place to sleep at night, and they give you eggs. They give you surplus ducks, and they give you meat. 
So that's just one example. Personally, I've been looking at livestock a long time, especially small livestock. I don't really have the room for cattle, and I don't really want to deal with sheep and goats and stuff like that. Uh, and everybody thinks the rabbit is the way to go. Rabbits are great, but rabbits live in a hutch. Rabbits need constant care, etc. My ducks pretty much need me to let them out in the morning, close them in at night, and fill their feeder, and fill a, a, a pond, which is a kiddie pool for them once a day. That's it. That's the entire regime. I can teach a 10-year-old kid how to do that in one day, and if they wanted to do it, they could do it every day themselves. It's that simple. It's that easy. And if I had a natural pond, I wouldn't even need to do the kiddie pool thing. And if I had a bigger piece of land with more forage for them, I could probably set up a feeder uh, to the point where maybe I feed them twice a week. In fact, if I wanted to make my ducks self-sufficient right now, since they will do a lot better job of cleaning food off the ground than a chicken, I could set a Moultrie 250-pound deer feeder out there. Fill that sucker with feed, set it to go off a couple times a day, set the duration until I get it about what they'll eat and what they need, and that feeder would feed those ducks for weeks before I had to touch it again. I could stick a little 5-watt solar panel on top of it, a little uh, 12-volt... Uh, uh, deer feeder battery in it, and it's pretty much perpetual. I mean, maybe needs annual maintenance, and every few weeks, not even every few weeks, probably once a month, dumping food into it. So that can become very, very self-sufficient. And then I've got eggs, I've got meat, I've got all types of advantage from small livestock. You can do rabbits, you can do chickens, you can do uh, fish in an aquaponic system. There's all types of uh, livestock that can be productive for you. Uh, I'm not saying everybody should do that. It's not in the cards for everybody. A living creature does need food, water, and shelter every day. And if you can't either create the system or de dedicate the time to it, then you don't need to be doing it. But it is an option to consider. Um, the next thing is consider things. If you don't have a lot of space, like aquaponics, hydroponics, microgreens. Uh, I know one guy in particular that was making about $5,000 a month Selling microgreens to chefs, they're extremely productive. They are extremely easy to produce in large quantity in a small area. He was growing them under a light system in a bedroom of his house and delivering them to local restaurants on a bicycle. I'm not saying you need to do that, but I'm saying that same approach, instead of microgreens, could be grown to baby greens, and you could be growing something like that in a closet if you wanted to. And it's very nutrient-dense. And it doesn't require a lot of time, and most of it can be automated. And if you're if you're doing it for a restaurant or a bunch of restaurants, it's a pretty elaborate system. To build a rotational system that's just enough for your salad every week, not that hard. Should everybody do it? No. Am I going to do it? No, I have a different type of production system. I'm just saying there's so many ways you can produce some of your own food as a direct producer which is what we've been talking about up till now with this rule, that there's no reason not to do something. A couple pots full of perennial herbs on your uh, porch so you can start using fresh herbs in your cooking. That's enough to get a start. Do something with it. And then there's what I call indirect food producer. So the indirect food producer is what starts to holistically relate everything together. And that means that those green beans can be preserved. So there are... A group of food storage techniques that I think people should really learn. One's kind of a bonus here because it's a cooking technique uh, that's been lost. But flash freezing is one. Flash freezing is the easiest thing to master, especially with your vegetables. It doesn't take much time, and it produces a really high-quality product. 
Yes, you need electricity to be on, but let's face it, most of us have electricity on. Okay? And a chest freezer and flash frozen vegetables. And you start using those vegetables. Keep the freezer organized. Keep things labeled. Keep things dated. And also you're cooking with fresh vegetables year-round, both what you produce, what you buy locally, and what you get as an opportunity to buy at the grocery store. You might walk in and find green beans for 20 cents a pound at the grocery store someday. I've done it. So flash freezing is a great way to do that. Flash freezing requires that we understand that if we take a lot of vegetables and put them in the freezer without doing anything first, There's an enzymic activity that goes on that we take the green bean out, for instance, without taking a, a, a first step, and we try to cook it, and it just never gets soft, and it just tastes bad, and it's nothing wrong with it. It tastes all woody and weird. Okay, It's because we didn't do what's called blanching it. So flash freezing means we either steam or boil blanch the vegetable, and we chill it immediately by putting it in cold water, and then we freeze it. I'm going to add a step for you that will make your life a lot better. Get some cookie sheets, put down parchment or wax paper on them, okay? Blanch your vegetables, spread them out in a single layer, put them in the freezer. 15, 20 minutes, the outside of them will freeze solid, then bag them up, seal the bag, put them away. What that will do is you can have a one-gallon bag of cut-up, flash-frozen, blanched green beans, and when you want a cup of them, you can open it up and take them out. They'll be individually separatable instead of a big green blob we have to cook the whole gallon at one time by adding that simple step it doesn't take a lot of time and honestly if you're doing it with a steamer so we have a little basket steamer a little electric basket steamer we fill up the three baskets in it we turn it on and every vegetable has its own blanching time you can use google and find that blanching time for vegetables in google you'll find all kinds of charts and let's say it's going to be a uh, uh, five minute steam blanch so you set it for five minutes Steamer gets done with its five minutes. You dump those beans into ice-cold water, and then you fill it up, set it to five minutes again, get your cookie sheet, spread out your vegetables, stick them in the freezer, do it again. Put that cookie sheet in. That's a lot of green beans. That's a lot. But if you're doing another batch, by the time the third batch is done, the first batch is ready to go in the Ziploc bags. Have a coffee, take a break. Wash, rinse, repeat. And if you get a big windfall on green beans, you can do this over a few days because they'll have a few days of shelf life. But there's a huge salvation of nutrient in a flash freeze, way more than canning. So that's why it's one of my preferred methods for fresh vegetables. And a canned green bean does not taste like a flash frozen green bean. I can do a stir fry with flash frozen green beans in it, and you'll swear to God those must be fresh. If I do it with canned green beans, you'll know they're not. Uh, but I also like dehydrating. Not all vegetables dehydrate well. Not all meats dehydrate well. But dehydrating is another skill you can learn. There's a YouTube channel called Dehydrate to Store. Dehydrate number two store. Uh, a gal named Tammy Gangloff, I think is her last name, runs that channel. I don't think she's put anything on it for a very long time. But the stuff that's there is like a little mini college course in food dehydration. So dehydration is great. Uh, jerky making and biltong making. I have a whole YouTube video series. I'll put a link to in the show notes today on making your own biltong, the South African way. Jerky, there's a million websites to do that. But if we get a really good buy on lean meat, we can make jerky biltong out of it. If we do a lot of hunting and we have a lot of surplus game meat, those are two great ways to preserve the meat. Canning, even though canning will not make a green bean taste as good as it will if we flash freeze it, it does work. 
Uh, and there's two types of canning. There's a water bath can and a pressure can. If it's a high acid thing, tomatoes for instance, you can water bath can it. Everything else and all meats need to be pressure canned. Canning is a skill that you can go out and buy a good canner, spend a little time on the internet, do a little research, and in one day you can teach yourself to can. It is not hard. You'll make some mistakes, you'll have some cans that fail. It's not hard though. And it's something that all of our grandparents did it. And you start to realize things like, well, now what I can do is I can make this huge pot of stew. And if I thicken it at the end with something like a starch, all I'm going to do is take aside what I want for today to use fresh, and I'm going to thicken it with a starch. I'm going to leave the starch out, put all the rest of it in cans, fire up the pressure canner, and I'm going to put six, seven, eight jars of, uh, of stew away. And now they have these electric pressure canners. They're pretty much you set the timer and it does everything for you. They're not really the, the best thing for large batches. Like I have a huge all-American pressure canner. My great-grandson will inherit that thing as long as my son passes it down and his son passes it down, etc. It'll be around forever. And it's huge and it does a large volume. But for that one big pot of stew and I only have four or five cans to put away, that electric canner is so simple. So that's something we don't have yet, but we'll be adding that as another component to our holistic system. Now, notice, we didn't run out and buy one of those right away. We kind of fell into the point where, hey, now this makes sense to add into what we're already doing. And when that stew's canned, and we label the top and what data was done, we already know where it's going. We already know what we eat. We already know when we make lots of stews. We can do this with soups as well. Soups, don't put the noodles in. If you do a, like a chicken noodle soup, make the soup. Can the portion without the noodles, boil some noodles the day you want, pull out a jar of soup, boil some noodles, drain the water off, dump the soup on top of it, warm the soup up with the noodles, boom, there you go. Real, real simple. Now, that stores a very long time. And it can be made with your fresh chicken that you grew in your backyard. Duck soup is awesome, by the way. No, it sounds a little weird, but duck soup is great. More on that in a bit. Uh, it can be made with the pastured poultry you bought. It can be made with beef that you've bought locally. It can be made with beef that you got an opportunity to buy. Hey, go to the grocery store. If you go to the grocery store and buy, you know, regular meat, hey, I'm not going to tell you not to. I want you to move toward grass-fed, pastured, locally produced. But if you're buying it, you're buying it. And we do sometimes still as well. We all have limits to our finances and our time and our space. Right? Those are three major budget items. And... Sometimes you go in a grocery store and there's a whole bunch of meat down at the end that's been marked down a dollar, two, three dollars a pound sometimes. And a lot of it's just edgy, but it's still okay. Well, if you just take it home and ch chunk it in the freezer, put it in Ziploc bags first, or it's going to freeze or burn the shit in that store wrap cellophane stuff. So package it until you have enough to make a stew out of it. So you do all beef in one, all pork in one, all chicken in one, what have you. Wait till you have that. You can make a great big pot of stew for next night. You don't care that there are five different cuts of meat. You just care it's all dirt cheap. Make up your stew. Now you've done an opportunity to buy. Now you have stew for tonight, maybe a little bit in the refrigerator for tomorrow night, and put up three or four more meals of it in that electric pressure canner. And all of it just starts to flow. This is why it's holistic. And then it, this is food you were going to buy anyway, you were going to eat anyway. And when you come home one night and everybody's tired and it takes four hours to really make a great beef stew, instead of pulling out Denty more, you pull out Mom's. It costs less, it's better for you, and it's now a long-term storable. Because you become a master 
which is really easy to do, you can do it in a day, of turning a non-storable into a storable. Smoking is another great way. I mean, at one time, it was the primary way that a lot of our different meats were preserved. It also has a great flavor. It's a great skill to have. Um, now, I want to talk about confit. A confit sounds fancy, and I actually have a typo. I'm fixing on the blog because I put com instead of con. It's confit. And if you want to look up information on it, it's spelled French, so it doesn't sound like it's spelled in English phonetically. It's C-O-N-F-I-T, like confit, is how you would phonetically pronounce it, but confit. And confit is slowly cooking anything in oil or fat. That's all that it is. And a typical way, now there's tons of recipes out there that you can look up and get into on how to do this. And I'm not going to give you any super recipes, but the basic way that we might do this is to take a meat. A classic thing to do a confit with would be uh, chicken, or not, I'm sorry, uh, duck legs or duck leg quarters. So the leg and the thigh is, is really, really classic. And you do it in their own duck fat. And you can see how this technique was developed on, you know, like French farms. Because you kill a couple ducks... You roast their breasts, you take the backs and necks to make a soup with, now you have the leg quarters, you have all the fat from the roasted ducks, you pour the fat over it, it just does it all by itself. But what you do is a new, nice, healthy sprinkling of kosher salt onto your, uh, onto your, whatever your confame, in this case, let's say two duck leg quarters in the bottom of a, uh, like a, a, a stone crock cooking pot would be very, very traditional. And then we just take the reserved duck fat from somewhere else and we pour it till it's completely covered. You can't, you know, it, it's completely submerged in fat. We set the oven to a temperature, and there's a lot of different recipes at a lot of different temperatures, but 225 would be a typical temperature. And we put the, uh, the, the confit duck in there, and it simmers in that oil, confits in that oil, for four hours maybe. And it becomes the most succulent delicious, tender, wonderfully flavored duck you've ever had in your life. You can do this with chicken. You can do this with pork. I'll talk about some other ways to do this. Now, here's the magic. If we take that out of the oven and let it cool, and we store it in a cool place, like a cool room of a farmhouse that's not heated in the winter, it gets stored for weeks without refrigeration. In a refrigerator or refrigerated environment, it can store for months. And when we want to turn it into something really delicious, we warm it up enough to get the meat out, we take a skillet, we add a little bit of the fat to the skillet, we get it nice and hot, and we put it skin side down in the skillet, we crisp the skin, and then we serve that with whatever else. You talk about fabulous. This is a very, today, this is like something you go to a very high-end restaurant and order. And, and people like rave over it. And this is like something people go to chef school to learn how to do. But every French farm wife made this dish for years. Now here's the trick. Traditionally, it's done with duck. Why? When you cook a lot of duck, you get a lot of fat. You reserve a lot of fat, you have the fat, you put the duck in its own fat, and you put it in a stone crock, And then it just all takes care of itself. And we can warm that crock enough, like we can make a big crock with 20, 30 leg quarters in it, keep that in the refrigerator, and warm that crock up just enough to get a couple out and then put it back in the refrigerator until we run out. And then we can 
we can actually strain that fat, heat it up, and use it again, and use it again, and just add as much as, much as we need, because the, the meat will take some of it up, and we might use some for cooking other things. Frying potatoes in duck fat that's been used for confit is very, very traditional, very, very French, and very, very luxuriant meal. A confit duck quarter with a side of fried potatoes fried in its own fat is... Like, it is a five-star restaurant experience that anybody can do. Now, here's the thing, though. Just because duck's traditional doesn't mean it's the only thing that works this way. And just because duck fat's traditional doesn't mean it's the only thing that works this way. You could cook this using butter and duck. So you've got duck leg quarters and no duck fat. You could do the same thing with butter. And you could reserve the butter and do it again. I don't know that it'll store as well uh, in a non-refrigerated environment, but refrigerated, it should store just as well. You could do this with something totally different. My friend Neil Franklin, who is kind of a gourmet cook, home cook, who's talked with a lot of chefs and learned a lot from world-class chefs, told me he's done this with peanut oil and chicken. And it's been just as fabulous, including taking the, the oil and using it to fry potatoes to go with the chicken. I found one recipe where somebody did it with lard and pork, and then keeping the, the fat common. So lard is pork fat. So you go out and buy like pork butt roast or something like that, a good roasted pork product. And then we take and we put enough lard in it that we know when the lard melts it'll end up covered. We put that in the oven, 200 degrees for four or five hours. And it's just, again, confeting. It's basically simmering in fat. It doesn't ever fry. If you have the oven at 200 degrees, 225 degrees, the temperature of the oil, the fat, is probably going to sit around 190 Below boiling temperature, but completely engulfing that meat. And it can't really go dry, can it? Because it's surrounded in fat. I know this sounds, and it's not really that high fat of a meal when you take it out and you, you crisp it or what have you. So you do the pork. And then you set this big crock of pork in your refrigerator. And whenever you want some out, you warm it. Let's say you fill up the sink with hot water, set it in there. So that it softens enough to pull out as much as you want for a meal. Then you put it back in the refrigerator and it solidifies back over and preserves it. It'll stay in there for months again. You shred up that pork. You get a, a, a pan nice and hot and you crisp the outside of that pork. You, you season it so that you're making something that you know the, the, the Mexican community would call carnitas. And then you have this fresh meat product that lasts months versus a week in your refrigerator without going bad and tastes better than if you just made it straight. So that brings me to one of my other things. In all of this, learn to be a good cook. Learn these cooking techniques. If you start learning cooking techniques that were used a 100 years ago, they almost always lead to some type of long-term storage or the process of taking a product And first cooking that which is most uh, non-storable, which is most perishable. And if you look at the way that animals were traditionally used as foods, what do you cook first? You cook organ meats. They perish the quickest. Then you cook fatty cuts. Then you cook lean cuts. Because lean cuts can be dried, built on, etc. So if you just start studying older cooking techniques, cooking techniques that are 100 years old or more, you start learning about a lot of these other things. So make great cook part of your you know plan for life you'll spend less money you'll make better use of all this great food restoring growing and procuring locally and you'll learn ways that lead themselves to storage because 
people had to do this a hundred years ago. You know, my father grew up in a home where they had an outhouse until the 60s. And they got their first refrigerator, I believe my grandmother told me, about 65. They had an ice box and a root cellar. And it wasn't until the 60s until they got a refrigerator. And they didn't feel like they were poor. They were coal miners in rural Pennsylvania. And it was just how people lived back then. And you didn't just go out and buy something new because everybody else had one. In fact, where they lived, not everybody else had one. So when, when actually I think their first refrigerator was about 15 years old when they bought it. Um, and that's when they could afford one. And I believe that refrigerator, last time I talked to my dad anyway, is still in basically what we call a shanty up there, which was the original house built in the 1800s, which is like a big shed now. It's still sitting there working. I don't know if your General Electric will work that long, but this thing uh, is still you know, keeping beer cold for the old man. So that was how everybody thought back then. So that was a limited amount of space. Only so much would fit in there. By the time I came around, you know, they had a chest freezer. I'm not saying that they were primitive in the 80s or anything, but I am saying that all of these cooking techniques, food preservation techniques, 70 years ago, no one would have even batted an eye. And it just makes sense for us to preserve those traditions for all the wonderful things to do. Because right now, people are spending a lot of money to go to a restaurant to experience these foods that are basically peasant foods and farmer foods. We just have forgotten how to make them. And, and, and trust me, for those people at that time that had so little, putting joy into your eating was important. So they got very good at what they did. Another one is dry canning. Now, there's a couple ways you can do this. Very low-tech way, you can buy uh, gold-lined paint cans that have a, a USDA food-grade lining. And you can get them from a company called the Carry Company. You can look up on, uh, up on Google. And uh, you put the food in there, and it's nice, dark and it's you know very stable, and it's not going to break like glass will, and it's very lightweight. You put anything that's dry storable in there, add an O2 absorber, put the lid on, hit it with a rubber mallet, and you're done. A lot of people do the same thing with non-food-grade cans, and they use a food-grade bag, and they line the can with the bag. They put the food in the bag, they fold the bag up, and they put the O2 absorber, can that. You can also dry store in regular glass ball jars, where you just take a, a normal canning jar, You put the dry storable in there, you add the O2 absorber, you put the lid on, done, and you'll find with that O2 absorber in there, when you go to open it, you know, later, it'll almost sound like a vacuum seal. I don't use O2 absorbers for this, though, and I do use ball jars now, uh, or canning jars. I use what's called a vacuum canner. It's a modified uh, pressure cooker, and a vacuum pump like somebody would use to work on an HVAC system, like an air conditioner tech would use, uh, with a couple valves on it. You put the jars in there. You put your rings on the uh, on the ball jars till they're finger tight, and then back them off a quarter turn. Close up the modified pressure cooker. Hook up the vacuum pump. Turn it on. You wait about 90 seconds for it to show the vacuum all the way down to basically the outer space pressure. You shut off the vacuum pump. You open the valve. Done. Jars are sealed. Tighten the rings on them a little bit. Label them. Put them away. That's another thing you can do. So we could take those green beans and we could can them. We could take those green beans and flash freeze them. And we could take those green beans and we could dehydrate and dry can them. Uh, and then there's another way. I got 40 pounds of green beans, let's say. Maybe I only have the patience. Maybe I only have the patience to flash freeze 10 pounds. Maybe I don't think green beans are worth canning. So I flash freeze 10 pounds for fresh eating. 
and I take the other 30 pounds, and I just cut them up, rinse them, wash them, throw them in the Excalibur dehydrator, let it do its magic over a day, throw them in the ball jars, dry can them, put them away. Now they're for soups and stews and pot pies and stuff like that. So, again, all of this stuff works together. Now, understand this. The production component, specifically the production of turning a non-storable into a storable, that's like your silver bullet. That lets you take all the stuff that's shelf-stable, put it here, take all the stuff that's not, create versions of it for them to be used together, and integrate them into your daily life the way your grandmother did. And there's not a lot of people that say, I wish that no one cooked like my grandmother. Most people love grandma's cooking. And most people that are old enough to remember who would ever have been their great-grandmother know that's where their grandma learned how to cook. And i got to tell you something. I feel bad for, for future grandmas. I think unless we go back and learn these techniques again and start making them part of our lives, I'm talking about my generation, the grandmas, and, and I'm a grandpa now, of my generation will not be looked at with the adoration for their cooking the way that our grandmothers were if we don't go back and learn what they did. Okay, And I think that's... I think. There is a movement to preserve that. That's why people listen to shows like mine. But the reality is a lot of it's been lost. And there's a lot of 60-year-old grandmas out there right now that don't nobody want to go to their house for their food. Because they cook the same food everybody else does. Modern. What made us just love grandma's cooking in the 80s is the grandmas of the 80s learned from the great-grandmothers of the 20s and cooked through World War II. And learned how to deal with rationing and storage and things like that. And they were using those techniques. And they weren't using gadgets. They were using technique. They were using fresh ingredients, local ingredients, wild ingredients. Whatever dad brought home that day in the game bag or the creel. Whatever came out of the garden that day. Whatever was given to them from the garden across the street. That's what made their cooking loved. And that's what we're losing. And that's why people are going to restaurants to get grandma's food now. You can bring that back to your life and make part of your food storage plan. Now, real quick at the end here, where do rice and beans fit into this? They're cheap, storable, it works, and if it makes you feel safe and good, go do it. Here's my quick, simple way to do this. Go out and get some food-grade five-gallon buckets. Simple food-grade five-gallon buckets. Get some Mylar bags that are big enough to fit in a five-gallon bucket. Fill up a couple buckets of beans, fill up a couple buckets of rice. Into them place a handy-dandy giant, giant O2 absorber. Buy your O2 absorbers at the end of hunting season. Hand warmers. A hand warmer that you shake up and warm your hands with. It's a chemical reaction that's exactly the same as the same stuff in a food-grade O2 absorber. All it is is a chemical that when oxygen is exposed to iron filings, causes the iron to rust much faster than it would otherwise. That's what a hand warmer is, and that's what an O2 absorber is. Because when iron oxidizes, it takes oxygen up. If it takes the oxygen out of the atmosphere and binds it with a solid, it creates, in essence, a vacuum if no other air can get in. So that's why when you put an O2 absorber into a, a ball jar with a bunch of rice in it, and you wait a week, and you go to open it, it goes, because the oxygen was pulled into the absorber. Well, that hunting hand warmer is the same thing, and it's the perfect size. So we take our Mylar bag, we fill it with rice or beans, we throw our hand warmer in there, we push as much air out as we can, we take a standard uh, iron, like you would iron clothes with, and we seal the Mylar bag, 
We fold the Mylar bag into the five-gallon bucket. If you really, really want to gild the lily, throw another one of those hand warmers in there and take the lid of the bucket and hit it on with a five-gallon uh, 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 a rubber hammer and label it and date it and put it away. And I have exactly six of those, three of one, three of the other, just as long-term storables. And just if things really go wrong and somebody's hungry, here's a cup of beans, here's a cup of rice, that's all you get, go away. It's easier to feed your neighbors and shoot them, okay? So that's something I don't put a lot of emphasis on. If you want to, that's the way to do it, cheap, easy, fast. And that's what it is. It's low-quality, cheap, easy, fast nutrition that will keep you alive. You can do it things with, like things with shell corn and any other thing, pastas. All this stuff can be done that way, as cheap as possible. And that's what it is. It's low-quality, cheap nutrition that's your last-ditch effort to stay alive or feed somebody else. Know this. The less work needed to do to make a food last, the less nutritiously valuable it is. What do I mean by that? Wheat and corn are terrible nutrition products. But if we take dried wheat and corn... And we just throw it in a bucket and don't do anything I said right now, put a lid on it, it'll still last longer than you probably will. It'll be As long as a rat don't get in there or a mouse don't get in there, don't get wet, you keep it out of the light, it'll store damn near for the life of a human being with no extra effort. And it's poor quality nutrition. An egg breaks the rule because of the shell and what's called the blem. When a, when a chicken or a duck or any bird lays an egg, if you touch it immediately, it's wet, slimy, and that dries on there, that forms a protective layer. Eggs are actually dramatically shelf-stable without refrigeration. My grandmother would have me go out and get chicken eggs every day, bring them in, she'd wash them, put mineral oil on them, set them in a bowl on the table. I never saw an egg go in a refrigerator until I left my grandmother's place when I joined the Army. I guess I did in my parents' house. But at my grandmother's, I never saw an egg in a refrigerator once. Fresh eggs kept on. We, we had enough production that you know those eggs might be a couple, three weeks old, and they were never bad. And I always asked my grandmother, well, How do we know if they go bad? She said, if they know bad, you'll know they're bad. As soon as you crack it, you'll, you'll be throwing it out. We've had, she's like, I had one bad last year, and I knew immediately. So eggs break that rule because they're very nutrient-dense, but that's because they're packaged in a preservation mode by uh, nature. If you take an egg and put it in a bowl, very, very nutrient-dense, and in a day it could probably kill you with the pathogens in it. You take a, a beautiful marbled steak, and if we don't do anything to it and we just... Throw it in a bucket somewhere, it'll rot and turn into gangrenous, nasty stink that'll make you sick and kill you. The higher the value of the food, the more needs to be done with it to preserve it. And the piece of lean meat will last longer, strung up and let the air dry with a little bit of salt on it, than a piece of liver. And the liver's more valuable. So that's a fundamental rule to understand. The more nutrient-dense your food the more poorly it will store and the more it needs to either be preserved in a special way or consumed right away. And indigenous cultures did this. When an indigenous culture brought down a buffalo, they ate the organ meats first and they fed the organ meats to the elderly and the children and the women first. And then they went to the fatty cuts of meat and they ate the fat right away too. The fat was used to cook other things and preserve other things. And fat actually is very preservative if processed. But if you just have a piece of fat, it goes rancid pretty quick. So the fats were either used, processed and used for preservative, like making pemmican, or they were consumed right away. It was the lean meats that were dried, biltonged, etc., because they were more storable. 
And that you'll find that everything you look at. The more nutrient dense it is, the more complete the nutrition profile, the more you need to do with it to preserve it. That's a good little rule to understand here at the end. Um, understand a few things here at the end with rule six. Seek the holistic solution. That's my bonus rule, rule six. Uh, first, none of these rules stand alone. So you, you really can't do one piece of this. You can leave some out and get a pretty good package. But you have to piece things together to make this work. The next is, a formula is always more than the sum of its parts. The reason you should take this total look at food storage and combine it together is because it is, it is the case that in this case 2 plus 2 is 5. Right? This is how 2 plus 2 can be 5. They're more powerful than they could be alone and not connected. Two heads better than one, that type of thing. Um, the next thing is take your time and ease into this as a way of living. I've given you a lot today. Uh, check in the timeline here on the audio. A minute and 39. I've done it again. I'm almost at two hours. Uh, because I'm so passionate about it. I have so much to teach about this stuff. I want you to know. That's why I put so much effort into this. And if you take all of this and try to implement this this week, it won't happen. You have to slowly ease your way into this. And it's certainly something you can do. So ease into this as a way of living. And understand here at the end how food storage practices this way empowers your life. It becomes much less a disaster for your family if anything goes wrong. Because of that American cliche, food on the table and a roof overhead, 50% is done. 50% is done. Eating something you will do every day for the rest of your life unless you either die or become really, really ill and can't eat. And then you're in big trouble. People in a survival world always want to talk about guns. Guns this and guns that. I'm a huge advocate of the Second Amendment. There's multiple guns I can see around me right now. There always will be. I love guns, too. But I've been shot at once in my life. I've been in a few fights. I've been in probably one fight where my life was really at stake. I didn't ever like it. I don't ever want to do it again. But I'm going to eat every day for the rest of my life a couple times a day at least. And so are you. And the person who tells me, I've been in fights for my life all the time. You're probably an asshole. And sooner or later, you'll probably lose one. Because most people don't spend all their days fighting and getting in fights all the time. People that I know that have been in fights all the time come in one of three packages. They're talking about firefights and they're soldiers that are out there and it's their job. They're like MMA fighters or boxers or something where it's a sport. Or they're assholes. I don't have a fourth category for that. Food is universal. You need it. Your children need it. Your grandparents need it. Your mom needs it. Your dad needs it. Your brother needs it. I need it. And you need it. So this is the fundamental cornerstone to a preparedness lifestyle. And just as I talked about it being holistic today, if you start here, then you'll get into all these other aspects of self-reliance and self-sufficiency, energy production, good money management, understanding debt slavery, all of these things, and you'll have a much more empowered life. Um, so ease into this. It does empower your life. And, and realize there is no part of this that I've given you today that you can't take a little bit of it and apply it to your life. And a little bit of each one will result in a lot long term. It really will change the way you look at life and the way you look at living. It will make you healthier. It will make you wealthier. It will make you more informed. And it will start to make you do the most important thing I can teach you to do. Question the bullshit that's fed to you every day. We've been talking about consuming food up here till the end. I want to talk just a little bit here at the end about consuming information. 
Much of what I've told you today flies in the face of conventional wisdom. The United States government says you're supposed to have how much food stored in your home? Three days. You know why they say that? Because 90% of people already have at least three days worth of food. There's very few American families that if you locked their door for three days would be starving to death at the end. They might be unhappy, they might be miserable, but they'd be alive. People can go three days without food, by the way. But three days of food, water, and emergency supplies in your home. Three days doesn't do anything except put Americans back to sleep because when Americans hear that, they go, well, let me look at doing, oh, I already have that. I don't need to worry about it. It puts us into the grasshopper mentality from the old story of the grasshopper and the ant. This nation at one time was a nation of ants. My grandfather told me the ant and grasshopper story about every weekend on the porch. And I loved hearing it as a kid. Kids are receptive to the concept of preparedness because it's a universal idea that makes sense to the human mind. It is only the arrogance of modern society that has led us astray. And if we start a walk on any level toward being more prepared, more independent, more liberty-oriented, it will spread through our entire lives like a positive virus infecting every nature of what we do. And we will begin to question everything that we've been told. And we will find that many of the things that we've been told are lies. Many of those things are true. But remember this about lies. The closer to the truth a lie is, the more dangerous and more believable it is. My dad used to say, son, if your watch is off by five hours, it's not a problem. You'll know it. If your watch is off by 15 minutes, you'll miss your plane, you'll get fired from your job. That's how many of the things in our lives are deceitful and how many of the things in our lives lead us astray. Debt is good. Debt can be used for good, but debt is not good. And the lives of millions of Americans have been destroyed because of debt. That's just one example. A lot of the stuff on the news that they feed you every day is untruthful as well. I don't want to try to reprogram the minds of individuals. That's not my goal. Then you just think like me. What I want to do is open you up to this entire opportunity to change the way you perceive the world based on your own logic and reason and asking your own questions. Believe it or not, taking this approach with your food supply, which is one of the most fundamental things to your survival, will lead you to this that. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd Don't have to live the way they tell you to Make your own Revolution.
Revolution is you. 